<laughs> Amen, right. This week I've been looking at a lot of literature on the topic of forgiveness to get ready for this sermon. And I've noticed that so much of the literature today, when it talks about forgiveness, talks about the therapeutic benefits that forgiveness can provide for us. I was reading a New York Times article this week that uh, was entitled, Let Go of Your Grudges, They're Doing You No Good. The author points out what holding on to grudges really gets you. However much we love to see them as our little pets, to, to sort of in a twisted way enjoy feeding them and nurturing them, this study points out that medical and psychological studies show that grudges are detrimental to your physical health. They will wreak havoc on your immune system and your nervous system. They do the worst uh, work on our cardiovascular system. Forgiveness, on the other hand, has shown that it can lower stress levels, increase empathy, and unburden your mind. And I think that's great that we can look at these clinical studies and affirm what the scriptures have taught. I mean, the Bible has been in on forgiveness for thousands of years. And I would love to be able to say to you, hey, come to our church, become a Christian, and it will be good for your health. We are better than the keto diet. But you know, that's not why Paul calls us to forgive. I could imagine if Paul had all those studies sitting in front of him, that wouldn't be the motive he would have for calling God's people to the act of forgiveness. Christian forgiveness really isn't for us. While we can uh, agree that there are benefits, not just physical benefits, but it is spiritually detrimental to hold on to grudges, to not forgive. The motive isn't self-help, though. As we'll see in this passage, the image of a Christian, and in fact Christians, forgiving is a way of extending the grace of God. The grace of God that has been given to us now gets extended through us to others. And in this way, the community of God isn't simply a nice gathering of people who believe the same things, but becomes the very presence where God's redemption is experienced. It becomes the place where you can hear the words, you are forgiven. That you can feel the embrace of someone who accepts you and know that that actually comes. Its origin, its power comes from God. That means that what we have here in this room is a is such a tangible expression of what Christ did on the cross that we are on holy ground as we meet together. That's just a small glimpse of what Paul is trying to get to as he calls this community to a different life when he's writing to the Colossians. So let's turn to this passage again. But before we do it, let's ask God to bless our reading of it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your uh, grace to us, that you have not left us in darkness, not left us with 
with even just a, a, a promise of a hope. We've, you've given us your word that so fleshes out this great redemption that we have, that we can have boldness and confidence to come week after week knowing that you're going to bless us. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I was a, a new Christian, Colossians chapter 3 quickly became my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. It has such wonderful uh, passages, uh, verses that, that speak in such clear ways of things that are inspiring. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. Those are great passages. But you know, it never occurred to me when I was attracted to them as a young Christian that the primary application of those passages wasn't to me the individual. What Paul is doing isn't talking to individual Christians to say, try to live like this or get inspired by this passage or that passage. What he's saying, he's trying to cast a vision for what the community of God should be like. We need to read this corporately. It's the vision of what the church should be. That point is clear right from verse 12 something that might be easy to skip right over. He calls the Colossians God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, if you read enough of Paul, you know he's not buttering them up. He's not saying, you know how beloved you are, and then, you know, gives the hammer of, of the criticism that he wants to level at them. No, he, he is intentionally choosing these words. He calls them holy not because in some way, they're this perfect little community out there in, uh, in modern-day Turkey that, are, that is, is living the perfect life. No, these words are significant, chosen, holy, beloved. Those are words that if you were following along in the Old Testament, you see time after time, they are the reference to Israel, God's people. And Paul, in this address, is helping the Colossians say, don't think of yourself as this random group of Gentiles, these Greeks who know nothing about, about Israel's history. You are part of God's story. You are the new Israel. In fact, I probably think even better, he'd say, you are the continuation of Israel, God's people. You are beloved. You're beloved not because you're lovely, not because you're this wonderful community that, that God uh, just can't live without. You're beloved because he chose to love you. And in that choice, he is now making you lovely and lovable. They are holy, not because they're sinless. I mean, if you just read the rest of this chapter, we know that they're not sinless. Our passage here talks about the disputes they have among themselves. They can't get along with each other. You go back a, a couple of verses. In verse 5, it talks about the fact that they're sexually immoral. Verse 8 talks about how they're angry with each other, that they slander each other. 
No, the, the whole point is that because of what Christ has done on the cross, Paul can look at this community and say, you are holy, beloved, because I chose you. You are my special people. Just the same way he could look at us here in New Haven. And while he might point out this or that, target our pride, target our materialism, target our selfishness, he could say the same words. You are, because you're in Christ, holy and beloved. And from that, he wants to show them the image of what God is making them into, and indeed us into. And that's the whole theme that he's been working with in this passage in Colossians. He's saying that what Christ has done for you is so significant, and not only forgave your sins, but he's making you into a new humanity. And the language he's using on that is clothing. He's clothing you and turning you into something new. And now we start to get a glimpse of what that new thing is. We see these five virtues here in verse 12. But then we get a look at these virtues, and I'm not sure I want to become that. That is not particularly attractive what God is making me into. I mean, compassion and patience are nice. I could probably do with a little bit more of both of those things. But kindness, sometimes translated gentleness, humility, meekness, make Christians sound pretty wimpy. I mean, does Christianity want the church, want Christians to become spineless? to become those people that everybody else just tramples on and takes advantage of. These, these five virtues aren't random. They're the character traits that are needed to become forgiving, which is the whole goal of what he's working with here. But one could argue that's the problem with the church. It becomes too passive, too kind. We're pushovers. Sure, those, there's those judgmental churches out there. But the pressure often is for the church to call out the bad people, to stand up for justice and morality, to have a spine and a backbone. Too often we turn the other way. Too often we enable bad people to keep doing bad things and just say, well, we'll forgive them because we're Christians and we have to, and look the other way. Is that what it means to be a Christian? Is that what forgiveness means? Well, that picture is not the image of a Christian that Paul is painting in this chapter. It's not weak. It's not a passive person getting manipulated by others. In fact, if you follow Paul's argument, the person he's describing, the people he's describing here, are a people of great power. A servant, yes, but but an active servant, not passive. And a community that is overcoming evil with a strength that transforms relationships. You know, that strength that's, that's referred to here 
is a strength not coming from ourselves. It doesn't come out of our, our own energy or something that we can work towards, some discipline that we can, can get over, over the course of years. It comes, the power comes from the forgiveness that God has shown. That's the logic of verse 13. Look at what he says there. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You see, the point there isn't that God set out this example. God forgave, now you just follow that example. Because that in itself would just leave us back on our own energy. But the point is that what God did in forgiving, that actually provides the power for us to engage in relationships. It provides the power for us to forgive others. I'm going to look three different ways that, that um, the gospel works this profound strength in a community that forgives. Three ways it empowers us to forgive. First, we will see that God's forgiveness gives us the courage to be sinners. It gives us the courage to be sinners. Secondly, it gives us the wealth to overcome having the role of a victim taking the role of a victim. Third, it gives you the strength to confront others with the very love of the gospel. Let's look, at, let's look at each of these. First, God's forgiveness provides you with the courage it takes to be a sinner. I mean, I can think of no other task that is more difficult for a community like ours. No other task that is, that is harder for me, for many of you, than to actually expose ourselves as sinners. Because so often we thrive on our competency. We thrive as being known as those who have accomplished things and can be trusted to do the right thing and to do it well. We look to our achievements and we want others to see them and not the faults that we have. Our biggest obstacle standing in the way of forgiveness is our inability to be a sinner. Another way to put it, um, for those who struggle with forgiving others, we are deluded as to our righteousness. Tim Keller writes it this way, you can only stay bitter towards someone if you feel superior. If you feel like you would see somebody and say, well, I would never do that. Have you had that moment? I mean, that moment's there so often when someone hurts you. I mean, I've felt it. When you're really wronged by somebody, the pain can be so intense that you have that moment to say, how could somebody even act that way to another human being? I've done some bad things, but I would not go that far. And we're unable to forgive. Miroslav Volf uh, describes our problem of forgiveness. He says, it flounders on the one hand when we exclude the enemy from the community of humans. 
In other words, he's saying that when we are hurt, we tend to demonize the people that hurt us. We don't want to hear the excuses. We don't want to hear the rationalization. We don't want to hear an alternate version of the events. We want to demonize them. We want to make them less human. The wolf goes on and says, as we demonize them, he says, I also exclude myself from the community of sinners. And that's a role that we play because we can't demonize them and see ourselves as a sinner as well, or see, because we, we would then fall into to self, to, uh, to hypocrisy. No, we must push them down and lift ourselves up. We must rationalize what we do, excuse our faults, so that we can still have a legitimate gripe as we punish those who have wronged us. Wolf goes on to say that, but the cross changes everything. No one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming that double exclusion. You see, when we stand before the cross, we have to see ourselves as the demon. We have to see ourselves and realize that I share humanity with the person who's wronged me. When I stand before the cross, it takes me away from my prideful self-righteousness. And it forces me to recognize that I stand on common ground with people I can so quickly dismiss as unrighteous. Paul says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. He wants to push the cross in front of their faces. Don't forget, you stand forgiven. If you follow through this logic, we see the danger, the spiritual death of an inability to forgive. You see, when I hold a grudge, I've got to keep my offender down there, and I'm up here. We're totally of different categories. But in this position, I cut myself off from the gospel. Because Jesus came to save those who are down there. And once I'm up here and aren't able to find myself on equal footing as sinners, then I cut myself off from the grace of the gospel. At worst, that's going to, at best, that's going to make me less thankful and joyful in my salvation. At worst, that's going to cut me off from salvation altogether. I'm going to have to rely on my own self-righteousness, my own perfection. And I'm going to live in fear of being exposed as who I really am. But God's forgiveness, when you stand in front of the cross, when you are able at that point to understand yourself as a, as a sinner, it begins to free you. You can now dare to be a sinner. You can now dare to hold that label because you already know you've escaped condemnation. Because you felt the love of somebody who has forgiven you even though they rightfully stood above you. If you make that move, the game is over. 
you will never be able to hold a grudge again. Because you'll be able to look at somebody who you thought was so different from you. And you're not going to turn away from their sin. You're going to be able to acknowledge it and say, yeah, what you did was wrong. It hurt. It hurt. But if you look inside my heart, you're going to see darkness too. I've wronged people as well. If God's forgiven me, I can forgive you. That's the power. That's the power of the gospel. It gives us courage to be a sinner. And once we have that courage to be a sinner, we can actually forgive those who sinned against us. Secondly, God's forgiveness not only gives us the courage to be a sinner, but it also gives us the wealth to overcome the role of being a victim. Now, before I begin with this, I want to be careful because the church so often is too quick to tell victims they need to to forgive. Too quick to get to that point that says, all right, now you've been hurt, sorry, you've got to go forgive your perpetrator. And we've ignored the role of healing. We can sometimes be harsher on victims than we are on offenders. If you've been deeply wounded by somebody, if your life is still ringing with the pain of that hurt, it can be cruel of the church to now say, to make you feel guilty for your inability to go and forgive. If that's you, let's talk. Let's focus on healing that has to happen in your life. We'll get to the questions of forgiveness. That's part of the package. But let's talk about your healing. But you see, the whole logic of this passage isn't there to make you feel guilty that you must go and forgive others. It's not calling you to some dutiful command. Okay, now I'm a Christian. I've got to do the things that's commanded of me. I've got to go forgive out of a sense of duty. No, God's forgiveness gives you the power to reframe how you see yourself. A person who is unable to forgive doesn't feel like they're able to let go of the role of a victim. They feel like they can't afford to forgive. When we are spiritually poor, we have this sense that we have a limited amount of resources that could be used in being gracious to others. We can't absorb the hurt ourselves. Think of it this way, if uh, you crash into my car, and I, uh, being gracious that I am, forgave you, what is meant by that forgiveness is that you are cleared of the wrong. I can't then go and say, here, now pay for all my damages. You as the forgiven may do that, but I'm clearing you. I'm absorbing the hit, but my car still needs to be fixed. And in forgiving, I make the calculation that in doing so, I'm going to absorb the cost that it's going to take to fix my car. You see, if you see yourself as poor, you'll have no ability to forgive. You can't bring yourself to true gospel forgiveness. 
Sure, you might fake forgiveness, you might put on a good face, but all the while you're going to harbor a bitterness and a resentment. You're going to take all those little opportunities you get throughout uh, your interactions with this person or references to this person, and you're going to exact a payment. Dan Hamilton, in his book on forgiveness, uh, describes what it's like to forgive. He gives a personal example, but he puts it in these monetary terms. He talks about the time when he was younger and, and was engaged to a young woman and how uh, when it was getting close to their wedding, uh, she left him. It was a deep wound. And as he went to the gospel for healing and help, he realized he had to forgive. But he also found a great wealth from which to forgive. This is how he described the payments he made. He said, I had to pay for the forgiveness. Small sums over a year. He paid for it in refraining from rehashing the past. Renouncing my self-pity and jealousy when seeing her with another man. The payment was done when I praised her to others when I wanted to slice her reputation. Those were the payments. Those were the payments, he says, even though she never saw them. Those are the payments of forgiveness. You see, if we see ourselves as needy, we're not going to feel like we can make those payments. We will never be able to absorb the hit ourselves. But Christian forgiveness stalls because we don't realize how rich we really are. You see, a person who is reconciled to God, a person who is restored to a relationship with God, who, is, who knows the salvation that they have in Christ, has it all. And the New Testament tries to bend over backwards to this, this uh, disparate little people living in, a, in what might be considered a very poor area of the world. And constantly the New Testament is telling these people how wealthy they are, how rich they are. You are a son and daughter of the king. You are the son and daughter of the ruler of the universe, one who has and will continue to give you everything that you need, who will meet every deficit that you feel with an overabundance of grace, and not just for this life, but throughout eternity. It's this reframing of who you are. You are not somebody who lives in the margins. You're not somebody who runs into the red at every moment. You are somebody who is infinitely in the black. From the grace that God has given you, you have a vast storehouse of grace that you can always lavish on other people because your supply will never run out. You have a dignity and a worth that your identity can withstand any attack. If you feel identity poor, then any little criticism that comes your way will always feel like something you can't afford. But if your identity is secured in Christ, you can take it because you know who you are and that can never be taken away from you. When God clothes you with this new identity, you don't have to be the perpetual victim. 
you now can draw upon these deep reservoirs of grace from the new person, this new creature that he's made you into. Thirdly, and finally, God's forgiveness provides you with the strength to confront wrongs with love. Verse 14, he says, Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You know, Paul has been working with this uh, metaphor throughout the chapter of putting on clothes. He says that the new creation that God is working among you as a people is taking you from the old life to which you've died and bringing you to this new resurrected life. And now your job is to take off the old garments, the things that, that are part of that old life, and realize that God is clothing you with the new. It's an image we looked at last sermon uh, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where there Adam and Eve has, had sinned and realized their nakedness. And even though they, they sewed fig leaves on each other and tried to cover up their shame, the very words of that chapter 3 say that they still were naked. But after God had forgiven them, he clothed them for signifying the, the wonderful clothing of dignity and worth that will come when he fully restores humanity in his great purpose of redemption. And that imagery Paul picks up again here. And he's already mentioned certain articles of clothing. They're all the ones that are needed for forgiveness, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness. But now in verse 14, he gets to the greatest article of clothing. In fact, everything else is just underwear. He says, over all these things, put on love. It's the suit that puts the whole outfit together. It's the key. Love. That's how we must appear. That's how we must act with others. But once again, we ask the question, does that mean that we ignore wrongs? Does love mean just turning a blind eye to things that that are evil? It's probably the most common question that I get when I talk about Christian forgiveness. Does forgiving mean that you need to become a doormat? Does it permit someone else to just take advantage of you? So hear it clear, no, that is not forgiveness. No, that's an enablement. It is never loving to ignore the sin in someone else's life. That's not a loving thing to do. Doormats actually act selfishly. They uh, choose an easier path. They fake peace with others in order to avoid conflict. But they never deal with what might be hatred and bitterness in their own hearts. You know, love plays a crucial role. Love is necessary. Love is necessary to understand true Christian forgiveness apart from other forms of forgiveness, especially forms I keep hearing about. I mean, go back to that New York Times article that I mentioned earlier. It, it gave this quote from psychologist Frederick Luskin, who is the head of Stanford's Forgiveness Project. 
sounds so prestigious and scholarly, we have done research on forgiveness. His conclusion is, forgiveness is for you, not the offender. In his words, he says, it is about freeing yourself. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that you have to like what they did or become your friend. That's not loving. That's self-help. Christian forgiveness is active. It moves toward reconciliation. It moves toward those who are the offenders, not away. That's why Paul follows up his command to put on love with this admonition. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That is a great verse. That's a verse that, you know, I want to put on, like, the living room wall. Um, If that verse is a warm, fuzzy verse for you, I apologize if I'm about to ruin the context for you. But this idea of let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, Paul is not talking about some sort of Zen peace that leaves us looking to tranquility and detachment from others. That's not the peace of Christ. The peace that Christ brings is a peace that settles war, that takes two warring parties and ends the conflict. It's a a peace that comes from what he did on the cross, taking us and God, who were enemies with each other, and works toward reconciliation, ending the hostility, satisfying God's justice. That word rule is actually the word um, that we could use for being an umpire. You think about uh, baseball, the two players argue over, was he out, was he safe? They look to the umpire to settle the dispute. That's what Paul's saying here. The peace of Christ needs to rule in your hearts. It needs to settle things. Not let the conflict rage, but come to the settlement of peace. You see, peace can't be in isolation. You can't do it off by yourself at some retreat somewhere. Peace requires you to move toward your enemy in love. And that means confronting wrongs. Christian forgiveness can't just reduce hatred and turn a blind eye to it, say, well, it wasn't so bad. No, it must confront the wrong, say, it was wrong, and it hurt. But I also forgive you. And when I forgive you, it means that I commit to not bringing it up again. I commit not to dwelling on it. I quit not to let it hang over your head and use it every time I want something out of you. True forgiveness is that commitment to say, this is no longer going to stand between us, but will move towards reconciliation. You see, only when you've changed your posture from victim to actually somebody who loves can you help someone else. Can you extend the grace of God that's been shown to you to a real productive way in somebody else's life? If you always see yourself as a victim, you're always going to want to exact payment and balance the scales. person who changes their posture can actually help. This is why I don't like my kids tattling on each other, right? 
Well, what's wrong with that? They're pointing out something that's wrong. Yeah, but their motive isn't to help their brother and sister. <laughs> their motive is to watch a mom and dad get angry and do some sort of punishment. They're, they're like wringing their hands. Yes, did you see what he did or she did? It doesn't come from a heart of love. So here's the question. What are you doing with your grudges? What are you doing with those conflicts that you harbor? Are you feeding them? Are you keeping a list of wrongs? Are you running away from them? Are you avoiding the conflict because you don't want to get into it with the person and it's easiest path just to stay in isolation? The move to isolation will harden you. It will harden you against that person. It will harden you against God's forgiveness for yourself. But if you're daily standing before the cross, if you're daily understanding what Christ has done to you and forgiven you, then you can move towards others and extend that grace. So what if the, the person never apologizes? Probably the second most common question I ever get. What if they never say, I'm sorry, or acknowledge what they've done? You have to know forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Yes, you can forgive someone who's repented, who's not repented. You can forgive someone who doesn't acknowledge wrong. It's an offer. It's an offer that you can give somebody. It can often be the first step to reconciliation, but it's only an offer. Full reconciliation needs the other person to repent. You can think about it this way. If I loan you some money and you steal that money from me and never pay it back, I would be foolish to lend you money again. I can certainly forgive you the debt, but I'm not going to give you money again because there's a rupture in that. To go on doing something that would increase the potential for damage done later is foolishness. Ultimately, I can say, I forgive you. I can even say it first because God said it to me first. Because that's the very logic of the gospel. Think about the gospel. God didn't wait around to say, I can't wait till they acknowledge what they did wrong, and then I can lavish my forgiveness on them. No, Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And that is amazing. That's amazing here if you don't know the grace of the gospel, if you keep thinking, well, the, what it would take for me to actually come into Christianity is way too high, our cost is way too far than I can ever make. Hear this, it begins with God doing all the work. That's what really is at the heart of this passage. The model running through chapter three, every time Paul talks about compassion and grace, he's not just talking about these abstract virtues that Christians should have, he is modeling what God has done for us. And he's saying, you as the community of God now need to take on the image of God. Be what he is. 
That's why we read that passage in Exodus 34. Those virtues are the very character of God. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Christ in, God in Christ took on the form of a servant, humbled himself, became low, didn't, didn't uh, think equality with man something to uh, shun, but moved towards us to forgive us and to love us. That's the picture of the new humanity that God is making here in chapter 3. A community that images God, that forgives each other, that shows God's love to one another. That's the picture of what God is making. We look at this Colossian church, it's not perfect. We know that they've been offending each other. They've been needing to forgive each other because they've been wronging each other. But you know, even that is noteworthy. Because in order to actually get hurt by somebody, you actually have to let them into your life. Too often, if we can be frank, church is just a place where you show up. It's an event that happens once a week. You come, you receive, you leave. And you never allow the person next to you to get messy with you. We were talking at the staff retreat this week about the, the tradition many have in churches of passing the peace of Christ, which if you've ever been in a church that has done this in a very formal way, it, it almost looks kind of silly. You, you stand up, everybody shakes each other's hand, and you say, peace of Christ. But it becomes ridiculous when you don't even know the person next to you. Peace of Christ to you, peace of Christ. I long for the day that we in this church are in each other's mess so much, involved in each other's life so deeply that we're stepping on each other's toes and we need to be forgiven. Man, that vision of a church says that we, when we do the peace of Christ, we're actually going to say, I forgive you, and it's going to bring tears. And we're going to embrace each other. Every week we're going to need to forgive each other because we love each other and have been family with each other throughout. That's the image of the, the church that he's painting here. That's the picture of the community of God together. Where we can hear in human voices God's voice that says, I forgive you. That's what God intends for this church. There's potential for hurt, yes. But we get to be a place that doesn't just gather together and look up those passages in the Bible that says, oh yeah, that's where it says God forgives you. But we can actually say that and act it out with each other. I forgive you. I love you. A community that's not defined by forgiveness will act the other way. We'll become the morality police which is so often what people want the church to become, call out the sins of those out there, point the finger at the people doing the wrong. It'll be a place that's never humble enough to see that the sinners are in here. It'll be a place that's not safe to be a sinner because once you become a sinner, then you, you run the risk of being condemned. You'll be excluded and unforgiven and dead to the community but the place that embraces God's forgiveness, 
the place that actually represents the redemption in Christ, can look at somebody and say, not only I forgive you, but you can bring him back from the dead. We can come and share a meal together and do this week after week until Christ comes again. And we'll have a union that will only be described as a great wedding banquet. That's a great vision. Let's keep working towards it.